All right, we are going to get right into it this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Um, the, the big idea this morning, here's where we're going. It's uh, not as memorable as I would like it to be, but I think it's accurate. The heart of God cares deeply for the unworthy and extends an invitation to join him in his work. The heart of God cares deeply for the un- unworthy, undeserving, and extends an invitation to his people, to the unworthy, to join him in his work. So a uh, quick show of hands. Any Bible nerds in the house? I know, you got to out yourself. Like Bible nerds, are you, do you get into the, <laughs> shaking your head? Nope, not a Bible nerd. I'm a Bible nerd. I like the scriptures. I like the connections. I like to see what is in play. I like to see the intent of the authors. I like to see the way that ancient writers um, used literary devices to signal um, to their hearers that something important is coming up. And what is happening actually in this passage right here is um, where Matthew is completing a section. It's been a long section, chapters long. He's completing it. He's He's foreshadowed it in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. And now in Matthew chapter 9, Verse 35, he's repeating that very same thing, and he's showing us that everything in between that was one section. Um, Theologians call this an inclusio. Everything included between those two bookends here are one theme. So Matthew today is completing a section, and he's beginning another section. So in Matthew 4, 23 through 25, almost word for word says the same thing as Matthew 9, 35, where we are this morning. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing, quote, every disease and every affliction. Um, he, is, he, he has been showing us, beginning in Matthew, the end of Matthew chapter 4 through 5, 6, and 7, that's the Sermon on the Mount, and then through chapters 8 and 9, uh, the Sermon on the Mount shows us the authority of Jesus' teaching, and then chapters 8 and 9 show us the authority of Jesus' healing, his power, his authority. And now Jesus is going to begin to extend, to take his authority, and he's going to begin to give it away to the apostles and to the disciples. And they're going to start doing the very same things by his authority that he has been showing them. So that's kind of what's going on here. Now, uh, Matthew is showing us Jesus on the move. That's what we've been seeing throughout Matthew's gospel. That Jesus is active. He's bringing uh, wholeness. He's bringing authoritative teaching, which means effectively that Jesus wants to see people affected and formed into something new and into something more. All of us have a sense that there is more for us, and God does want more for us. He wants our sanctification. He wants our holiness. He wants our faith to grow more and more dependent on him. Jesus is also a herald, which means that he has been proclaiming. He's been proclaiming good news. The first word might not sound like good news initially to us. The first word of Jesus' ministry is repent. Repent. 
But what follows that is, for the kingdom of heaven is near or is at hand. And repentance is actually really good news. When God comes to us and says, hey, change your mind about who you think I am. I'm better than you think I am. That's actually a really good news statement. Repentance first starts in the mind and starts with us changing our minds about who God is. And then our way of life begins to follow. Now, additionally, Jesus is a great healer which I've just said has been Matthew's focus in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Um, and in, just in 8 and 9, Matthew 8 and 9, uh, Matthew has given us 10 examples of Jesus' wide-ranging authority. So Jesus is speaking to the water and the waves, telling the weather literally to be still. He's casting out demons. He's healing blind people. He's, heal, he's healed a paralytic for life. He's brought a young girl back to life from the dead. Uh, he's healed a woman who has been suffering uh, for over 12 years. Uh, Matthew is, he's describing here, let's just orient ourselves in Matthew 9, 35 and 36, that Matthew has gone throughout all their cities here. He's healing every disease and every affliction. So I want us, I want us to get this right. Uh, what does Matthew mean? Is Matthew saying that Jesus has healed everyone's every disease and affliction? Or is he saying that, is Matthew trying to show us that there are no diseases and no afflictions which Jesus doesn't have power over? It seems that Matthew has put forward the examples that he has in chapters 8 and 9 in order to show that Jesus has the power within him, available to him, to heal anything and to heal anyone who comes his way. There's nothing and no one outside of the scope of Jesus' authority. And what's so cool, I think, about this passage is that we're going to see uh, Matthew begin to reveal how Jesus felt about people. He's going to show us in some real, like it's with verbatim, with words out of Jesus's mouth, how he felt about these crowds. And then he's, Matthew is really going to hit it on the nose in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus describes the condition of his very own heart. But Matthew um, is showing us here the heart of God toward people. That's what we need to see in this passage. These are sentences that we, that you and I cannot afford to neglect because they build our trust in, in who Jesus is. Um, I've lived a good portion of my story, about 15 years, questioning Jesus' heart toward me. Um, and I've heard enough of your stories to know that you've lived a good portion of your life and maybe are there now where you're questioning his heart towards you. So all of us together, our own hearts are these performing, duty-keeping, religious hearts that are pretty similar. We are inclined to base Jesus's heart toward us on our faithfulness to him. That's our inclination. So if I'm doing well, I have a, a kind of an abiding sense that God is more pleased with me and perhaps loves me more. If I'm doing really poorly, that I might be out of the family. And we kind of go in and out. I grew up in a, a denominational um, stream where I, I, was, I, was, I never felt secure in the Lord's love for me. So I, I want to just ask you a question here that I want you to ask yourself. If your faithfulness is what motivates Jesus to love you, where does that leave you? If your faithfulness is what motivates him to love you and to stay with you and to remain faithful to you, where does that leave you? Does it leave you in a state of security or does it leave you in a state of perpetual insecurity? 
So I just want you to be kind of asking that question as you, as you go. Now, Matthew uh, was one of Jesus' disciples. So he's, he, the words that we're hearing coming off of the page this morning, Matthew is hearing the tone of Jesus' real audible voice in his own ears, and Matthew was seeing the things that Jesus was doing with his own eyes. He lived on sight, on scene with Jesus for a period of three, three and a half years. And he, and he records that Jesus said that Jesus had compassion on these crowds because they were harassed and helpless. Um, the literal kind of idea of this phrase, harassed and helpless, means that they were torn and thrown down. It's the idea of a sheep or a piece of livestock being attacked by a, threat, a predator, a threat being torn and thrown down. These crowds, Jesus says he had compassion on them because these crowds were like a sheep without a shepherd. They were people without good pastors. The word shepherd in the Greek is poimen. Pastor is where we get that word. Pastor means shepherd. Um, last week, I said something about the crowds. I, I, I mentioned that the crowds posed problems for Jesus, which is one of the reasons that Jesus sternly, he often sternly warned his, uh, the people who he would heal not to go and say anything about him. His time had not yet arrived. He didn't want these crowds whipped up in a kind of traveling miracle road show. It was causing some problems. Um, they, but, but here is where I've come to more clarity this week as I've been, just been studying this uh, passage. Uh, though these crowds presented challenges for Jesus, his posture toward them was always compassionate. He did, not, uh, he, he did not view them as an imposition. They wore him out for sure, and he'd have to go and escape and recharge with the Father and in prayer and in the wilderness. But his posture toward them was compassionate. And I think no doubt that's what Matthew impresses on us right here in this passage, that Jesus got a serious ache in his gut when he saw how these crowds were not being shepherded well these are the people of Israel. They were not being shepherded well, and he wanted to do something about it. He got a literal pit in his stomach. So first, we're, so we're seeing something about the heart of Jesus Christ, and I want to just develop that theme a little bit more. The heart of God, the heart of Jesus Christ cares deeply for the unworthy. Um, I want to shine light on a couple of things in this passage that I think are important to us that are happening specifically with this phrase, sheep without a shepherd. There's, there's Old Testament um, significance to this phrase, sheep without a shepherd. It's, there's historical significance here. Jesus is developing a theme. We're seeing the consistent heart of God shown throughout the scriptures, now being evidenced by the way Jesus is responding to the crowd. So that's the first thing. There's Old Testament significance. The second thing is that there is real-time significance for us. I want to show us briefly why it mattered then to the people who um, Jesus was interacting with these crowds and why it still matters to us today. So um, first, the Old Testament significance of this phrase, sheep without a shepherd here. Uh, this language, it actually show, it shows us the heart of God toward his people throughout history. This all didn't change when Jesus arrived on the scene. So I, I want to call us to, these won't be on the screen, but you can just listen along and I'll give you some context for where they fit historically. But I'm starting in the beginning and I'm moving throughout Israel's history and then close to the time of Jesus and then Jesus saying it himself here. So um, beginning with Moses, 
Moses, God said to Moses, as Moses was about to transition the leadership of the people of Israel out of his hands and into the hands of a guy named Joshua, um, the Lord said this in Numbers chapter 27 to Moses. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, so the one who created everything, let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation of Israel who shall go out before Israel and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. So somebody who's in their public view as their leader, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. There's the language. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of God and lay your hand on him. So God's provision for the people of Israel was he gave them Joshua after Moses that they would not be a people who are sheep without a shepherd. And then about a thousand years later, as Israel's history develops, the prophet Ezekiel says something very similar. He's in the the people of Israel have been like sheep without a shepherd. They've wandered and walked away from God. And now the Babylonians have come in and sacked Israel and carried off a bunch of captives into Babylon and decimated Jerusalem and decimated the temple. And now Ezekiel is a prophet who is ministering to the people of Israel. And he says this, so they, the people of Israel were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with, with none to search or seek for them. They were people in captivity by oppressors. And then if you fast forward, the people were in captivity by Babylon and then Babylon gets conquered by Persia and then the Persians let the people of Israel go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but they're still an oppressed people, but now they're back in HQ. They're in their headquarters and they're able to, to, to renew some of their life of worship together. And the prophet Zechariah says this about them though, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for a lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, hot against the leaders of Israel, the priests in the new temple. And he says, I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock. So we see that there's some Old Testament significance here in this phrase that now Jesus is using. He's looking out on the people of Israel, these crowds who are coming to him for healing. And he's going, I've got compassion. I've got an ache in my gut because of the way these people are abused. The, the people, the leaders of Israel are not shepherding them well. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus's compassion moves him toward all who need the basis of Jesus's mission is not in judgment. It's in compassion. He didn't come to condemn the world, but he came in order that the world might be saved, might be called to repentance and faith through him. The New Bible Commentary, which I've been using, um, talks a bit about this word compassion and says that compassion um, is a strong word for an emotional response, which always results in caring action. So compassion is a pretty strong word for an emotional response, some, a pit in the stomach that always results in movement of care and caring action, right? 
Um, the Greek word, actually, I don't want to bore you here too much, but the Greek word, the Greek noun that Matthew uses for compassion means literally inward parts or bowels of mercy. So literally the pit of the stomach. You're feeling that in the pit of the stomach. So I was in Camelin Park this last Tuesday. I was writing a paper for school and um, I had a picnic table near the parking lot and I was just enjoying the sun and no Wi-Fi, so no distraction. I had the computer out in front of me and I just hear this smack and immediately I hear this what I believe is a two-year-old young girl start just wailing and I look over and I see who I think was her grandmother and maybe her older sister about four years old and then her granddad and they're all kind of coming back to their car and I'm witnessing I'll just call her grandma I'm, I'm witnessing grandma being super rough with this girl I'm being harsh in her tone and my whole like my my focus shifted from what I was doing here to now I'm watching this scene I'm watching it unfold I start my mind starts to race I start to think like do I need to get up do I need to intervene I'm trying to assess the situation Situation. And I, 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 as I kind of got some uh, more understanding about what was going on, I think this girl was being mistreated, but it was nothing that police would intervene with. It was like I, I had no ground to stand on, and I began to fear that I would likely make things worse for this little girl if I were to get in there and start mouthing off to grandma. And, and it, with my best foot forward or my worst foot forward, whatever it might have been, I, I decided, you know what, I need to like... Uh, I need to pray and I need to just watch and keep an eye on the situation. And so grandma was harsh in her tone and kind of harsh in her treatment, but I don't think it was abuse. And so I'm just praying um, and I'm asking the Lord to protect this little kid and I'm watching the situation closely. But all I could do was pray and all I could do was entrust this little girl to the Lord. I felt pretty helpless in that moment. And as I've been reflecting on it this week, I, I think that I exercised compassion in that moment. I think that that pit in my stomach was compassion and, and all I could do was pray and be ready to intervene if something developed there. Uh, and so I was, I was just kind of like examining what's the difference between just pity and compassion? Like, was that compassion? And the difference between compassion and pity is that, um, is, is that compassion moves us to caring action. It's that emotional response that moves us to caring action while pity expresses regret at a situation while kind of shaking our head and moving on, right? It's the statement, oh, well, what can you do? And, and you, just, you, you just move on. That's pity. Pity is, sucks to be them, walk on. Compassion is uh, where it, it, it literally moves us to caring action. Now, in some of our cases, that we're limited. We, we can pray, uh, we can work behind the scenes, but we can't intervene in that moment. Jesus has compassion on these crowds, which move him to heal and to deliver so many and to teach them and to open up their minds to what God is doing. He's showing caring action. But his, get this, hear this, his compassion also moves him to commission his disciples. His compassion moves him to do something else, to commission these disciples, which means that he is going to begin to include them in the massive work of proclaiming his kingdom and displaying his values to the world. Jesus is one man in the flesh. He understands that to reach the world with this news of repentance, 
It's going to take not just him, but it's going to take a multitude of people who are joining him on his mission. And so the heart of God cares deeply for the unworthy and extends an invitation to join him in his work. So you and I are being included in this work. Disciple means learner. It means apprentice. To be Jesus' disciple means we're learning from him. We're apprenticing ourselves to him. And after watching Jesus do all kinds of good, do so much good, his disciples are still trying to figure him out. They're still trying to, to find, like, where do we fit in all of this? And as Jesus' leader, he gives them a job description and a title. The title that he gives them is apostle, which means sent one. And that's we're going to develop that further next week and in the weeks to come. Um, But here is where this job description starts. He says to his disciples, he saw the crowds, he has compassion because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he turns to his disciples in verse 37 and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore do something. Here's the job description. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this or into his harvest. I love this. I I think this is beyond encouraging here. Wednesday, I'm sitting on my front porch. I'm writing, and here's what I see. Number one, no matter how things look to you and I, no matter how bleak it looks out there, no matter how bleak it looks in our family system, no matter how bleak it looks, the harvest is plentiful. Words from Jesus himself. There are a multitude of people waiting and wanting to be called into the family of God. And so our work then is to pray and to ask the Lord of the harvest to send people to bring the harvest in. The the, the hard work of like growing crops and that long season of growth in agriculture, it culminates in this time of harvest. And Jesus is saying, it is that time of harvest. It's ready Which leads me to more good news. We don't have to manipulate guilt or compel anyone to be sent to do God's work. (laughs) You don't have to be the Holy Spirit to your husband or your wife or your children or anyone else. The Holy Spirit will do his job in being the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be Jesus. You can't be Jesus to anyone else. Drop that phrase. Stop using that phrase. You cannot be Jesus. Let Jesus be Jesus to the people around him. But Jesus does call us by his spirit to intervene by prayer to ask him to do the work of calling and regenerating and activating faith that only he can do. We pray. Jesus didn't say to these disciples, the harvest is plentiful, so go. He said, the harvest is plentiful, so pray and ask the Lord to send the laborers. And then what I think is so wild in this text is as we turn to chapter 10, verse 1, who does he send? He sends them. The same ones who said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. Now, come here, you guys. You're going. I'm answering your prayer through you. He tells them to pray. He tells them to pack their bags. It's like depend and full send. Prayer prepares our hearts to go. That kind of a prayer, Lord, send laborers, is actually doing preparation work on our hearts. It's loosening our hearts on the things that entangle us and and keep us focused on on, on the things of earth and material things, all of that. Prayer actually preps us to be ready to be used by God. Here's a a principle in all of this that I embrace. Um, The Lord has commissioned us to make disciples. Um, He's commissioned all of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, not just to be his disciples, but to be disciples who make disciples. 
That's your commission. That's my commission. That's our commission. And as an elder of this church, he's commissioned me to raise up, to identify and equip elders in this church along with deacons in this church and wholehearted disciples, members of this church. So here's what I take all of that to mean. That there is not a magic disciple factory like out there tucked away in the woods somewhere that's got these ready-made wholehearted disciples that and our work is just to go and find the ready-made wholehearted disciples so that they can be sent. Instead, there's a church of 125 adults or so and a bunch of kids right here. Jesus is asking us to pray and to look to him with a willingness to be the laborers and a willingness to develop laborers who are prepared to be thrust out, sent out. This word that Jesus uses um, in Matthew 9, 37, where he says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers is the exact same word that he give, when he gives these disciples authority to cast out demons. It's a strong thrust. Literally pray to the Lord of the harvest to cast out, to thrust out laborers to be sent, laborers to draw people in. You might be wondering, who is a laborer? What does a laborer include? Laborers include, this, this is really good news, teachers and, and preachers and those who are equipping the people of God in the scriptures and in doctrine. It includes one-on-one -on -one mentors. Maybe that's your fit to just mentor the people around you. You're really good in like one-to-one -one environments or one-to-two environments, not so much in, in bigger, more public environments. This laborer here includes disciple-making parents, some of whom we just committed to the Lord. Labor includes kids who love Jesus and are looking for ways to pray for their friends and, and, and help their friends come to know Jesus. It includes gospel communities, not just the leaders of those communities, but everyone in those communities. Laborer includes missionaries of every variety, like from pilots uh, going across the oceans to youth workers that are volunteering a solid week of their time to disciple kids at youth camp. Evangelists, labor includes evangelists, it includes musicians, counselors. Laborer here is a catch-all for everybody who is involved in Christ-centered disciple-making. It's all of us. It's you. It's me. It's the person in your skin, your clothes, and sitting in your seat. Harvest, uh, there's kind of a development here with Jesus when he uses this word harvest. In the Old Testament, it's equated with judgment. Oftentimes, when God is talking about the harvest in the Old Testament, he's saying the harvest is ripe, the people are disobedient, I'm about to judge them. But Jesus' use here is different. Um, he's so optimistic. I love this about him. The harvest includes a multitude of people primed to be brought into the family of God and made sons of daughters. I just, I love the optimism of Jesus. When you read the gospels, look for the, there's times where he's like, man, you have little faith. But there are also times where he's just, purely optimistic. I mean, he has a real handle on things. Now, um, 10, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 is about the disciples' commission. It's not about their selection. They've already started to kind of follow Jesus in his ministry, but now, for some reason, 10 chapters in, Matthew decides to name all of them, and he gives us the names of these 12 that Jesus called, that Jesus hand-selected, 
And we only know something concrete about roughly half of the 12. The other half are totally obscure. Like, do you know anything about Thaddeus? Do you know anything about Bartholomew? Do you know something about Judas? Iscariot, but there's another one. Do you know anything about him? Simon. So, like, you know something about Simon, right? We know something about Peter. We know something about James. We know something about John. But Peter, but the guy who introduced Peter to Jesus was Andrew. Do you know much about Andrew? We don't know much about Andrew. We know something about Thomas. What's he famous for? Right? We can all identify with that. I don't mean to insult anybody, but we're, we're most likely to be counted among Jesus' obscure disciples. I, I'm good with that. Uh, does it make us less worthy if the world doesn't know our names or our deeds? Does it make us less loved by God, used by God? Think about the multitudes of people that it took to topple Rome in the first three centuries of the church. How many of their names do we know? Only the ones who wrote things. Only like the bishops of the churches and some, like some of those people who made it into maybe uh, Josephus' works, a Jewish historian. Part of the enduring value of this group of 12 is that Jesus works with all kinds of people and has the power to unify the most diverse people. I just love this about this group. His mission becomes their shared mission. What he has been doing now is what they get to begin doing. This is the beginning. This is kind of like the hint. It's in the bud of the Great Commission that's going to come at the end of Matthew's gospel. Think about this, too. We have two really extreme sides represented in this gospel. There's the guy who's writing what we're reading here, Matthew. He identifies himself in this list with his vocation, tax collector. A lot of people accuse like the writers of the scriptures of trying to clean things up, trying to control people. But what we often see are the flaws of the disciples just put front and center. We see that with Peter a lot. Matthew is identifying himself on purpose as a transformed tax collector, a former enemy of the Jewish people. So Matthew finds himself in this group, but also this guy that Keith mentioned, Simon the Zealot, finds himself in this group. Matthew is all about shaking down his fellow brothers and sisters, Jews, in order to take that money a little off of the top for himself and then take that money and give it to the Romans. And then Simon is all about, his, about national identity and national pride. He wants to see Israel restored. He wants to see the oppressors, the Romans, or whoever it is in power, kicked out. If the main thing for each of those guys and the remaining 10, if, each of them, if, if the main thing for each of them remained their main thing, there could be no reconciliation and there could be no shared mission. Something had to give in order to unify them. Something had to overwhelm their loyalties. Something had to overwhelm their individualized main things. They had to share something. They had to share someone in common whose value overwhelmed their previous values. Jesus means to overwhelm the values of his disciples till the only one remaining at the top is him. This list of the 12 here were youngsters in the scheme of things on the path of following Jesus. These guys had not done anything impressive. They're more liability to Jesus than asset. They'd gotten rebuked at least once in Matthew's um, 
account for having little faith, tiny faith, as they're out getting tossed about by the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Um, They were targeted at one point by the Pharisees as the Pharisees are questioning them about Jesus and Jesus had to step in and kind of shield them from the Pharisees' accusations because they were probably going to get themselves in some trouble. Now this low-brow band of 12 disciples is having the God of all creation bestow his authority on them with an invitation to join him in his mission to his world. They've not merited an invitation to this kind of authority. It's amazing. Huge responsibility. Huge cost. We know uh, many of them, we know their stories. They would go to their deaths testifying that Jesus is Lord and that he has gone to the cross for our sin and that he has been raised on the third day from the grave. He is alive, not dead. And that the spirit of God dwells within them. They would go to their death, not recanting that testimony. Their faithfulness wasn't what motivated Jesus to love them, to invite them to follow him and be discipled and eventually be sent. It's not our faithfulness that motivates Jesus to love us either, and he does. It's not our skills. It's not our IQ. It's not our EQ, our emotional intelligence, that warrant his invitation to follow him, but yet we find that he invites you and I. It's not our competence that compels him to teach us and send us. Yet we follow this band of 12's footsteps as his ambassadors. It's not our faithfulness that compels Jesus to love unworthy people. It's his faithfulness. He has decided that that is what he is doing in the world. That he is going to restore the unworthy to himself. And then he is going to see all of that work through. As I examine my life I am insanely inconsistent. I'm inconsistent in my eating. I'm inconsistent in my exercising. I'm inconsistent in my rhythms with the Lord. I'm inconsistent in my attention to my kids, my affection to my kids, my anger with my kids. I'm inconsistent across the board. The only thing that is consistent about me, it seems, is my inconsistency. And yet the Lord Jesus has called me to share in his mission. And he's called you. And it's not like pastor and amateur hour here. We are all equals at the foot of the cross. We are all equally called by Jesus into his mission. And it's a testament to his goodness. He wants you and I with him on his mission. And it's not your competence that qualifies you. It's his faithfulness that will work with you and transform you and I over time and send us and accomplish what he wants to accomplish through us. Praise be to God. Here is one thing this morning that I just want to put on your plate. Jesus invites us to pray. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. So um, how can we join him in that? This, is, this may seem cheesy and corny to you, but it's been really effective for me. So I just want to lay it before you. Um, on my watch, uh, I was talking to somebody when they came in this morning. It was 10.02 and my watch started buzzing. And the label on my watch just says laborers. And since the end of uh, January at 10.02, so Luke has an account of this in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. And so I set my watch for 10.02 a.m. every day 
that it just says labors and it just starts vibrating on my wrist. And I have these little moments of like whisper, kind of breathy, like Lord send laborers prayers. And other times I'll, I'll squeeze in 30, 45 seconds, two minutes, three minutes, like whatever it is in that moment when it hits, I'm just consistently saying, Lord, send laborers, Lord, send laborers. So you could set an alarm for 938 a.m. every day, which is Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. You could set it on your phone or you could set it on your watch. You could just label it labors. I've been doing this since the end of January. And I can tell you this with consistency, probably 75% of the time that this goes off, I am, I, I'm interacting with that prayerfully. I'm kind of switching my mindset. I'm praying and then I'm back to what I'm doing or I'm in the middle of a conversation, Lord send labors. And you know how you can have a couple of conversations at once in your mind, like that's happening. And so there have been just so many opportunities for me to pray in this direction because of this cheesy little alarm on my watch. So I'd invite you to, to, to respond to this passage. Jesus is commanding us to pray earnestly that he would send laborers because the harvest is ready. So give it a shot. See what you think. Let it ride on your phone. If you accidentally turn it off, go a month and then recognize it's still there, flip it back on and, and just keep going. May we obey the Lord Jesus. Would you pray with me? It's a simple step of obedience. Father, help us to, to do that, to, to, to simply obey you, uh, to, to love you um, in the way that you call us to, that we would be a people who uh, are consistently pushing back on our, uh, the amount of how cleaned up we feel being what justifies us before you. Would we stop basing our justification on how we're being sanctified? Um, you are working with us, flawed people, but redeemed people. We do sin, and so we are sinners, but you have justified us, and so we are saints. And so we live in that tension. And would you help us to remain faithful to you, to turn from our unfaithfulness when we see it? And we thank you, thank you, thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for being so faithful to us. We love you. In Jesus' name.